The gray space is a living organism of movement between military, civilian, political, and economic factors inside of spaces suffering from fragility. Hi, and welcome to the 1CA podcast, a production of the Civil Affairs Association. I'm your host, Saad Raza. I also go by Raz for short. Our guest today is my friend, Stanislava Mladenova, who is currently a doctoral candidate at King's College London, who just finished her research on the functional relationship between military and civilian entities in settings affected by low-intensity conflict and state fragility. In civil affairs, your success depends on getting the right information to the right people at the right time, whether it's foundational information for a team about to head out on a mission or putting together a map or other data visualization to brief a general or an ambassador. Tesla Government Solutions and staff can help. With Tesla Government's knowledge management solutions, you're adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. Welcome, Stanislava. And congratulations on finishing up your research. Can you quickly give our listeners a little background about yourself? Hey, Roz. It's great to be here and with our listeners today. Um, yeah, I am a doctoral candidate at King's College London at the moment. Um, I've just completed my thesis. And uh, before that, I was a practitioner for quite some time with operational experience, both in Afghanistan and West Africa, always looking at the relationship between civil and military actors. Thank you, Stanislava. So to start off, I just want to ask this first question. What led you to explore this topic? And why are you suggesting to our audience that it is high time that we are thinking about the civil-military relationship? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So there are several reasons why I decided to look into this topic uh, and to go sort of straight to it. Uh, The first one is that the U.S. military has found itself in the non-traditional role of a development and humanitarian actor. Uh, This is most recently synonymous with Iraq and Afghanistan and the global war on terrorism. Uh, But the wars are over now. And soft civil affairs units, small footprint mission are still taking place across almost every mandate, be it peacekeeping, disaster response, complex emergencies, training of other militaries in counterterrorism, counter-narcotics, and counterinsurgency. The second reason uh, is that a non-traditional phenomenon has also been occurring in the last decade for development actors. Um, NGOs have dramatically scaled up their presence and programming in fragile states. And in many of the same spaces where civil affairs teams are also doing this type of humanitarian and development work. So high-level donors and development organizations are now implementing in spaces that were once off-limits to traditional development programming. The third reason is that Fragile spaces are dramatically expanding. Within this decade, one in four people will be living in fragile settings caused by climate change, um, resource dependence, and natural disasters. All of these things are contributing to what I would call a vicious cycle of poverty, insecurity, and state fragility. And as a result, fragility and conflict have become slow moving, they're chronic, long term, and kind of in a state of permanence. Um, And this means that we can no longer look at security and sort of the social angle of things in isolation with each other or from each other. Um, These actors overlap, prolong and diversify their engagement in order to tackle this more complex space. Um, And yet, 
humanitarian development and security assistance are seen as tie-bound and um, specific to certain contexts, conditions, and organizations. I agree with you. Over the past decade, we've seen these fragile spaces continuously expanding and will continue to expand as other factors such as climate change, as you mentioned, combined with weak governance, security. I'd also add state-sponsored and other multinational companies' exploitations in these areas. They'll put more pressure on the affected populations. So I wanted to ask you or talk a little bit more about the gray space in your research. You and I have talked at length about this. The term gray zone, gray space, refers to been described as a hybrid conflict where stakeholders are engaged in politics, economy, and informational components of the war. This conflict has had many names over the years. Irregular warfare, low-intensity conflict, insurgency, stability operations. Did you confine to any one of these specific type of activities? That is actually a great question. Um, I did not. I use the term gray space to refer to the ambiguous nature of the character of the terrain in which um, SOF and or civil affairs and NGOs are enmeshed. Um, as a result, um, in the analysis, I drew on all of the definitions and contexts you described. Um, the only clear distinction that I do make is high-intensity, large-footprint conventional conflict, where the military is fully in charge and owns a terrain and airspace, contrary to that being low-intensity conflict where the military is not in control, but is present um, in spaces where no war was declared or even comes to fruition, frankly. Uh, but in this space, the military may simultaneously support with logistics, it may engage with civic actors and conduct humanitarian activities, um, all while serving as a lethal asset. Essentially, I would say the gray space um, in the definition I used um, is something which borrows elements from various doctrines, and yet it belongs solely to none. Um, as a result, um, the gray space is a living organism of movement between military, civilian, political, and economic factors inside of spaces suffering from fragility. Um, as a result, it is more easily described than defined, and that's the point. That's a really good answer. And I agree. These spaces are just, just short of war, and the military is simply just trying to create conditions for stability to meet the needs of the affected populations, support assistance as necessary, and set conditions for other actors such as NGOs or specifically the indigenous governance to be able to take lead on some of these type of activities within their own areas. So in your research, you explore SOF as humanitarian actors. This is unusual, thinking that, you know, SOF is mostly focused on lethality and is more considered a hard power. You're absolutely right. This is, in fact, quite a contrarian question to ask. That's why I wanted to ask it in the space of this research. Humanitarian assistance is one of soft, soft core tasks. This is why I was really interested in examining it uh, in contrast to the very lethal nature of the force. The natural answer would be that soft are not humanitarians. Uh, but because we're talking about the gray space, even this answer is not so straightforward. Indeed, soft projects are not designed with development of humanitarian needs in mind. Uh, also, there is no scientific measuring of soft humanitarian and development efforts. Uh, this, in addition to their lethality, is why the military attracts so much criticism from the NGO community on this topic. But separate from the larger debate of whether they should or should not be humanitarians, short answer is that they can be, uh, but they deliberately choose not to. LC38brand.com, the civil affairs lifestyle brand. 
a little bit of something for everybody. T-shirts, polos, shorts, hats, flags and posters for your walls, and stickers for everything else. Celebrating the heritage of civil affairs from the civil reconnaissance of Lewis and Clark through the monuments men of World War II and companies of Vietnam. Representing the present teams of the global war on terror, we have items for citizen soldiers of USA KPOC and warrior diplomats at Fort Bragg alike. LC38brand.com. It's cool to like your job. Um, and this may not be a good thing based on my findings in the research. Um, why? Well, there are two reasons for that. First, in contexts where the terrain is difficult to access, hundreds of miles away from the embassy and the country team, as I'm sure many of our listeners will know from their um, operations at the tactical level, the environment is very different than it is in the capital. In a village which is five hours away from the embassy on a dirt road, local communities may never see an NGO actor or a diplomat, but they might see a soldier. And if this soldier is building schools, refurbishing hospitals, um, you know, vaccinating uh, cattle as part of somebody's livelihood, in the eyes of the local community, um, this soldier becomes a development actor. They essentially absorb the function of what uh, an NGO or development actor would do. The second part of that is, despite SOF not positioning themselves as humanitarian and development actors, the projects they deploy have some unintended and positive consequences for the population. Um, this becomes clear in when I talk to communities where, you know, there's less of a concern as to who aid comes from, but about whether um, what is being provided is of utility. Also, whether those providing the assistance engage in local communities with dignity, humility, and respect. I agree with you. Sometimes the lethality mindset within some of our uh, soft operators just overshadows the directives to provide humanitarian assistance in these areas that are impacted by internal conflicts or other situations. And as you mentioned, too, soft and civil affairs, their contribution to humanitarian assistance or other type of development type activities do have a positive impact on those affected populations out there and do provide, as you said, sometimes they're the only ones that are out there to be able to reach those areas. You talk a lot about NGOs in your analysis. I think this is a less understood part of the operating environment for our audience, specifically our SOF and CA guys. You know, having worked on the ground and engaged with local NGOs and some bigger NGOs, uh, because we're operating in the same space, either for sharing of information or at times resources. But we all know that as the military, you know, we are partial and non-neutral compared to NGOs. At times can create, you know, tension between the military and NGOs. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, this is the ultimate question. Um, and let me answer it in two parts. First, I want to talk a little bit uh, about the incredible complexity and expansion of the NGO sector and what that actually means for all of our work. First of all, putting NGOs under one general umbrella would be like putting all of civil affairs under, under all of DOD. There are so many different types of organizations operating out there. They focus on peace building, on medicine, education, youth, civil mobilization. Um, it used to be that the touch point between NGOs and the military was only for those that focused on humanitarian assistance. But that is no longer the case. And we know it's not, it certainly was not the case in Iraq and Afghanistan. Second, not only has the space become more complex, NGOs have grown dramatically in number. By how much? Uh, just as a comparison, during World War II, 
there are about 3,000 international NGOs. With Iraq and Afghanistan, this number reached to over 50,000. This includes private, non-governmental, and philanthropic organizations joining in that mix. So to answer your question, um, considering this complexity, can these entities be impartial and neutral? Um, and again, I'll, I'll answer uh, uh, in a sort of more roundabout way. When it comes to operating and funding, unlike the military, most NGOs rely not just on public money coming from taxpayers, but also from private money. And private money is largely unrestricted, unlike public funding, which is given by governments. Donors in general, in particular government donors, hold the purse strings. They often dictate the agenda. Also, Donors' reporting requirements, like those of USAID or DFID or the World Bank, may be different than requirements for NGOs funded by private donations or charities or even people like you and me who give to our favorite charity. As a result, I argue that these implementers are, by design, partial to the donor first, which can limit their impartiality, certainly as far as their, the agendas of the NGOs go. I'm not implying that um, NGOs cannot be impartial, certainly in this space when you have a mix of private and public. Um, however, there are certainly limitations on whether they receive this money from bilateral or multilateral aid agencies or through the private funding channel. Bilateral aid, again, I'm talking about government aid, particularly um, is simply a function of foreign policy. And policy always takes a side. Uh, there is evidence that even multilateral agencies can be biased in aid allocations. So, I mean, the case, of course, goes with private aid as well, but um, there definitely is something very strongly driven by an actor that's providing the funding. For example, um, what is to stop the Gates Foundation from focusing on polio, but not on malaria, for example, even though the local community might see the latter as more of a threat? Going back to what we talked about earlier, the fragile space, the kind of shifting between security and security type of operational environment. Um, 20 years ago, very little aid, private or public, was going to these places. Um, and increasingly, most public aid is going there. So yes, NGOs are now heavily into operations in fragile states because their funders are. And this is important for the civil-military relationship because not only are NGOs increasing in size and complexity, they're now concentrating in these fragile settings and again, navigating the same spaces that the military are. I think that's really going to open some eyes for some of our listeners. Sometimes we overlook the accountability of these implementing partners and who they're accountable to and how they're spending the money. So thank you, because that does focus on the impartiality at times. You know, in the past, we've talked about the NGOs starting to mimic civil affairs or soft in these fragile spaces. What do you mean by that? Yes, actually, this is uh, the second part to my previous answer. Um, indeed, I wrote a lot about how the fragile space is shifting, um, shifting because of size, because of money, as I mentioned, because donors are putting a lot of their money there. NGOs are enabling themselves to replicate some of the structures and behaviors of um, how military actors are shaped and formed. And what do I mean by that? There are two things that I found in the research that is a causing for this to occur. Uh, they're separate, but they're kind of related. The first one is that by directly recruiting retired military personnel into their organizations, NGOs are bringing certain practices and operating procedures into their organizational culture. 
with former military personnel bringing their experience and skills into leadership roles of the development humanitarian space. They're doing this and they either oversee work in unstable environments or they themselves partake in this work. And that actually has the potential to uh, facilitate a more productive civil-military relationship. The second part is that NGOs contract many of the same hard power skills and assets held by the military to the acquisition of private security services. And this gives them the flexibility to choose the type of relationship they prefer to have with other organizations and, frankly, gives them more freedom of movement to expand over different terrain uh, than the military, which, uh, as everyone knows, needs to be kind of on a very strict leash as to where it is to go, what it is to do, who it is to do it with, as they're there under very strict bilateral security agreements or status of forces agreements. So all of that to say that keeping the military outside of activities that should be done by NGOs in the first place is something that occurs and NGOs are now um, basically filling that void. But again, some of the hard power capabilities that they're able to acquire for themselves. I think what is relevant for us to take away from this is that the expansion and the incredible complexity of the sector is the reason why the military needs to start paying a little bit more attention to this understand these entities and these NGOs. You know, conversely, the military needs to develop opportunity to make it more enticing for these entities to want to engage with them. NGOs are such a huge part of the operating terrain, and they're not going anywhere, as you mentioned. No, absolutely. I, I 100% agree with you. Um, we have to find a way to engage in dialogue about this and develop opportunities for these entities to talk to one another. And of course, there's a natural brokenness of their relationship. There has been for some time, um, but now there's an impetus and that's something that they both need to be thinking about. And the good thing about the moment in which we're finding ourselves now is that we can do it in advance and preemptively not put these actors on the ground together and by accident in the way it happens in Afghanistan with SERP. We actually have the luxury to think through how these entities can cooperate. So in your research, you compare tactical teams of NGOs and civil affairs units, and you argue that these entities are more similar than different. Can you elaborate on that, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, With research, you have sort of the creative space to do some uh, interesting comparison and some, uh, as I mentioned before, contrarian questions. And SOFT's lethal power is one of its core competencies that no one is suggesting that, um, you know, SOFT shouldn't be doing this or this is not their job. I mean, to what extent they should or should not be doing that is a different topic and I think a different analytical examination. Um, so, yes, they, they are hard power. Um, NGOs focus, on the other hand, is on humanitarian and development needs, and that also cannot be denied. And this is separate from the questions around impartiality and neutrality that I talked about earlier. So I looked at how these organizations function, adapt, budget themselves, and, and operate, and I found that there's actually some similarities. The first one is that unlike the large-scale but bulky conventional force, SOF are usually a, a small, lean, 12-person uh, cross-functional team or a four-person civil affairs team or a larger civil affairs team. The agility and ability to navigate spaces without a heavy footprint gives these teams an advantage. Much like NGOs, civil affairs too can have a focus on health education, basic infrastructure, um, irrigation, you name it. And again, this is more relevant for our reservist colleagues um, who focus on these various areas in their civilian professions. 
But the point is that um, both of these entities can be specialists and they have these specialties available within them and to them. Also, unlike conventional forces, SOF are kind of known as, you know, street-level integrators, and they're capable of connecting not just with other militaries, which, of course, can very much be the predominant nature of what SOF do, especially when they train other militaries, but they also are able to connect with non-military, non-governmental organizations or other civilian arms of a government. In other words, they have the ability to work well with others. And again, this is similar to what NGOs are having to do all the time, which is engage um, or rather be, you know, highly capable at engaging within communities and among communities and between communities. Third, again, this goes back to the specialist generalist piece a little bit. Software considered specialized generalists who can perform a large array of tasks. And as non-experts, they become very good at something specific very quickly. That's fine. Anyone that's been in an operating space knows that that's a key necessity for doing this kind of work. And this quality is further reinforced by their ability to go outside of the boundaries of their craft by leveraging civic actors. Similarly, a small health NGO serving in a specific country or region would specialize just in that, you know, just in health or whatever it might be. But what's also interesting is that while NGOs are perceived as specialists, probably their most important tasks are to be adaptable and carry out multiple tasks. Again, specialized generalists, just like I talked about SOF. So this actually is less about SOF versus NGO, but more about people with attract at the tactical level who are operating in a constantly shifting and fluid environment. So that is really what drives their similarities by accident, because it's this fragile space that requires them both to navigate in a particular way that's causing both of them to almost like mimic in a way to adapt and respond to the needs of what's going on on the ground. LC38brand.com, the civil affairs lifestyle brand. A little bit of something for everybody. T-shirts, polos, shorts, hats, flags, posters for your walls, and stickers for everything else. Items for citizen soldiers of USA KPOC and warrior diplomats at Fort Bragg alike. LC38brand.com. It's cool to like your job. With Tesla Government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. Both SOF and NGOs have a great deal of autonomy as ground operators and away from the larger hierarchies to which they each belong. Um, you know, SOF ultimately is responsible to the larger DOD. Despite this autonomy, NGOs to their funders. Again, this is there's, of course, a big difference between whether they're implementing partners of a donor agency or whether they're just independent. But ultimately, someone always held accountable to somebody above them. But I think what's probably the key to mention here when it comes to both of them is that, yes, for SOF is the larger bureaucracy, for NGOs is the funders, but to whom are these actors accountable outside of their own institutions? If SOF builds a well in a community and the well dries up, um, has it met its security objective? I mean, I know a lot of these projects are for access and placement, so... You might say, well, it doesn't really matter if it dried up or not. But we also deep down know that when these projects go wrong, there is an impact in the community and that may not play well in the long term. 
And on the flip side, the same is also true. You know, what does become of a decrepit structure? And who do populations living in, inside of these communities are holding accountable? Somebody, if a bridge is built or an electricity grid is built by an NGO, and now everybody's electrical bill quadruples, and people are actually now having to uh, potentially use the majority of their income to pay for this electricity, who is going to be held accountable? And I thought that these were some really relevant questions for us to be pondering. Those are really very important questions, specifically in the accountability and the trifecta of accountability within the tactical teams on the ground, the affected populations, and the higher headquarters, you know, or if it's an NGO, their donors. It's not just the donors or the uh, the higher headquarters within the military, but it's also the affected population. And trying to get consent from them you know, and buy-in from them and actually meeting the needs of the population and trying to uh, reduce the current vulnerabilities and current impacts on the population so in closing, what are the, the big takeaways for our listeners today? If I were to kind of give the bluff to our audience and, and colleagues in the space, I would say that this space is expanding. For fragile states, fragility is expanding. Um, as I mentioned in the beginning, one in four people in the world will be living in these spaces and will be a customer to development and security actors, whether they are taking on each other's roles, copying on each other's roles, or completely staying away from one another or from the very projects they're implementing. Uh, the reality is occurring with or without this relationship working well. And these spaces will not be conventional or large in magnitude. They will be minuscule, they will be omnipresent, and they will be chronic. Operating in a conventional military context for the military and conventional development context for NGOs would become the exception, not the rule. And it is because of these realities that both of these sides must seize the moment of the challenges they're both facing and find more and better ways to start coming to the table more deliberately and less coincidentally. Withdrawing these two together, both SOF and NGOs, I think instinctively know the importance of how viewing the world only through one prism, security or development, not how the needs of the populations in this expansive and complex space can be met. They also know that dividing the world between them is not how their relationship can flourish. So I would advise that they embrace the inevitable fading of the barrier which once made them strangers. Thank you, and I agree with you. As the space continues to expand, there needs to be more collaboration and integration with these different actors that are on the ground. You know, sharing of information, planning at the tactical level, and potentially even at the operational level. Stanislava, again, I want to thank you for your time and your contribution to this ever-evolving topic of military supporting humanitarian efforts. We'll see you on the ground next time. Thanks, Roz. It was my pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast and others, please remember to subscribe and hit like. The Civil Affairs Association is a proud sponsor of the One CA podcast. You can find more podcasts like this on www.1capodcast.org. Again, that's www.1capodcast.org.